Blog Talk Radio. Chatting with Sherry is presented by the writers and illustrators of the future. They have been providing a means for new and budding writers to have a chance for their creative efforts to be seen and acknowledged. Welcome to Chatting with Sherry. Today we're welcoming best-selling author Robert J. Sawyer. This is a recorded show. It was probably a couple of weeks ago, so if there's anything a little uh, off by the date, that's why. Uh, he's a lovely man. We had a really great chat over a lot of different subjects. So please enjoy. Here's Robert. Hi, Robert. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sherry. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I'm happy to have you uh, here. Um, uh, the weather here is broiling hot in San Diego. How is it in Toronto? It's the same thing. I know Americans think of Canada as a country of cold. That's only in winter. Uh, we have a heat wave warning on. Uh, we've had it for a few days. The elderly and those with respiratory difficulties are being told to stay indoors, even ab- above and beyond the COVID-19 reasons for doing that. Yeah, that it sounds intelligent. Oh, sure. <laughs> um, I lived in the Midwest. It's basically, Toronto's the same weather as the like Ohio, Indiana, Illinois. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, we're all uh, Great Lakes and uh, cities, and uh, pretty much the same. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember that when, because um, we had Toronto stations when I lived in Ohio when I was a kid. <laughs> so the weather was pretty much the same in both places. <laughs> That's right. You know, I mean, people think of Canada as the 49th parallel, that border between most of the United States and Canada. That's true. Toronto's down at 44 degrees. We're substantially farther south than Seattle, Washington, for instance. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, I think the closest um, to us in in California would be Vancouver, right? Uh, Absolutely. Vancouver and Seattle are very close to each other. So they're more like West Coast. Oh, totally different weather. They have... You know, uh, uh, West Coast rainforest weather. Yeah, very, very mild, very little snow, if any. Lots of rain. Yeah, yeah, because they like Washington. <laughs> exactly. Um, one of the first questions I love to ask authors is, when you were a kid, who inspired you to read, and what did you like to read? So absolutely my parents inspired me to read. Both of them were university professors, and uh, they wanted to raise, you know, intelligent intellectual kids. Uh, We were told that we could, we had an allowance, you could use that for candy, go to a movie, whatever. You wanted a book that didn't have to come out of your allowance. That was something you could have because the culture of reading was considered a very important part of our family tradition. And uh, so it was definitely them who got me into it. My father saw that I was watching Star Trek in the 1960s. And when I was heading off to summer camp, he went to a local bookstore near where we lived, tried to find me some science fiction books. He's like, well, if you like science fiction, we've got to find him the books. And he found two, one by Isaac Asimov, a name he knew from Asimov's nonfiction, uh, and uh, the first novel by David Gerald, who was the guy who invented the triples for Star Trek. And uh, so my dad very much set me on this path. That's funny. Um, Isaac Asenough was my father's favorite uh, author. Oh, just a tremendous writer. I had the great, great, great privilege of meeting him once in my life. And uh, it's one of the great experiences of my entire life. Oh, God. Oh, I, never, I never even got to see him. The closest I got to actually hearing him, other than an interview on television, I don't know if you remember this. Gene Roddenberry had a record where he interviewed like absolutely inside Star Trek. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and he interviewed Isaac. That was the closest I actually got to. I think more the real Isaac because he's talking to a friend than the guy who was on the interview shows on TV, which is much more, you know. Exactly. And they were friends. They were absolutely friends. As uh, Asimov and uh, Roddenberry didn't really know a lot of science fiction writers before he created Star Trek. But in the process, he either developed some who've gone on to be great, like David Gerald, or he got to know some of the, the huge writers, including ones 
who never wrote for Star Trek. He became friends with Ray Bradbury and, as you say, uh, Isaac Asimov, who never wrote for Star Trek, but loved and admired the show. Yep. And I remember during that interview, one of the things he had said he had on his desk was uh, three, two or three of Asimov's books that were nonfiction on his desk as references for his scripts. <laughs> In particular, he had Asimov's Guide to Science, two-volume yep. book, uh, which was, it's just invaluable. Of course, it's hopelessly out of date at this point. I still have uh, my dad's hardcover two-volume set as a keepsake, because it's, it's uh, literally uh, 60 years out of date, that book now, but fabulous uh, at the time to distill, before we had Google, before we had Wikipedia, all human scientific knowledge down into two volumes. It was an unbelievably Herculean feat that Asimov pulled off very, very well. It is weird, because um, you have like a sort of sentimentality for certain books. My uh, Two of my subjects that I loved in college was archaeology, because I wanted to be an archaeologist, and astronomy, because I just I loved space and that kind of stuff. So I still have the original textbooks. And though the pictures in it are gorgeous, as they always will be, the actual text in it is incredibly out of date. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I'm an astronomy buff, too. Long, long, long time member of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. Uh, I don't get to do nearly as much observing as I would like to. I live in a brightly lit city, as you can imagine, mm -hmm. uh, but I just love, love, love astronomy, and I have astronomy books from my childhood, from the 60s, uh, that I still cherish because they kindled that love uh, of that science for me, uh, for sure. I totally understand where you're coming from. And it's funny because, like, the guy who wrote one of my favorite archaeology tasks, he's still an archaeologist. I still see him being interviewed for new finds that he does. So it's not like he's out of commission. It's just that these findings have been waylaid by new stuff that they found later, you know. <laughs> if he keeps it at it much longer, he's going to be an archaeological specimen himself. <laughs> I, I think he must have written it young, because I think he must be in the 60s or 70s. Not that old. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you don't have to be an old archaeologist to be an archaeologist. <laughs> oh, no. Old archaeologists never die. They just join their own collections. Oh, old God. university professors never die. They just lose their faculty. <laughs> old writers never die. They just go out of style. Aww. <laughs> I just actually don't think writers ever go out of style if they're, like, good, though. I mean, I still read yeah. classics. You know, the classics of the last 200 years are quite readable. Mary Shelley created science fiction, the first science fiction novel, novel about a scientist testing a theory, which is, or a hypothesis, which is that you could reanimate dead matter by the application of electricity, conducting an experiment, first science fiction novel, had its 200th birthday two years ago. Mm -hmm. Try to go back much farther than 200 years, and this thing that we call the novel, didn't really exist in its modern form. Mm. And most of those older books are still quite a slog. But in this past year, I've read uh, Little Women uh, by Louisa May Alcott. I love that book. Wonderful, wonderful, right? The great old stuff, uh, really, you know, where the language hasn't morphed beyond our ability to comprehend it as it does with Middle English. Or with Shakespeare. I mean, it's really well, funny because I love Shakespeare, but I know that a lot of people won't listen to it or watch it because they, they don't understand the language. But the thing is, when you take it in English class, it's like they make you read it. And so it's a bunch of students who never looked at Shakespeare getting it. So, of course, they get turned off. <laughs> Absolutely. This is, you know, Shakespeare would be appalled if he was alive today. He never wrote those scripts to be read by anyone except actors and, you know, the crew, the, the set decorators and so forth. He wrote those scripts to be performed. Mm -hmm. And, you, t you know, I'm lucky here in Toronto, we have one of the world's greatest Shakespeare companies, just a short drive away, the Stratford, Ontario Shakespeare Festival, yep. where William Shatner got his start, where Christopher Plummer got his start, where Lorne Green got his start, where 
so many fabulous actors got their start as Shakespearean performers, and to this day, where the great Shakespeareans from around the world come to perform, we got to go as field trips to see the plays. And when you see a great actor doing Julius Caesar, you realize it's an incredible story of political intrigue or Taming of the Shrew, and you realize it's a really body comedy. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you can go down the list. When you see it performed by somebody who's hitting all the lines the way they're meant to be read, everybody is enchanted. Everybody is laughing or cheering or crying, depending which particular type of Shakespearean play you're seeing. Schools do so much damage to people's love of literature in so many cases. I think that's true, but and and I know that L.A. I was brought up in L.A. and I know the L.A. school system gets a lot of stuff thrown at it. But one thing I remember when I was a kid was when I was in junior high school, we had people from the Royal Shakespeare Company come and perform scenes of Shakespeare because they didn't do the whole play for us. And it was the first time it, it, it was like it knocked everything that I thought before out because I thought, oh, I prefer Greek plays because I can understand them better and stuff like that. But then when I heard these this, these three men and this woman doing uh, performing, I was like, oh my god, oh, oh, this is cool. <laughs> it's <a> totally different reaction. <laughs> One of the most amazing things that's come out of this COVID-19 crisis isolation is Sir Patrick Stewart, of course. Oh, yes, he's reading the sonnets. Reading sonnets that people who in their whole life would never have read a Shakespeare sonnet are tuning in for every one of his performances because when a master does it, oh my God, this is, you know, incredibly moving, powerful stuff. I know, I I don't remember which sonnet it was, and he says, well, this one's a tough one. I'm like, Oh my God! If Patrick Stewart says this is a tough one, it must be impossible. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Because <laughs> he was like, oh, I was having such a hard time practicing this because this is a really tough one. I was like, Oh wow! <laughs> but he was brilliant. I've been loving it. Yes, I have been paying attention. I have been listening to every one of his uh, sonnet readings. They're just. They made my days. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so I actually really love, I love all kinds of uh, writing. I mean, I like, I, I, I was an actor, so of course I like plays. I was going to plays since I was a very little girl because my parents were big theater nuts. They went to plays on their honeymoon. So were you influenced by theater as well as by books? Yes, absolutely. I, I still uh, love going to live theater. Um, I've always had a fondness for that art form. I was in a school play when I was in grade six, and uh, you mentioned Greek plays. Uh, the classic Greek tragedy is mm-hmm. of great interest to me, Sophocles uh, in particular, but I like a number of those, uh, those playwrights. Um, and uh, I took a course in the history of theater, uh, where we did plays starting with Every Man from the Middle Ages, that's the title, Every Man, moving forward to modern uh, works of theater. Um, and uh, I, I'm fascinated by the art form. And I often, when I teach science fiction writing, which is one of the things I do at the workshop for the Writers of the Future contest, for which I'm a judge, I, one of the things I tell people is, look, when you're trying to pick what details to put in a scene, of a novel or a short story, think of it as you being the set decorator in a theatrical production. Mm-hmm. Set decorator doesn't get to do what they do now on a $100 million feature film, which is do a whole CGI recreation of the pyramids of Egypt in the pharaonic era or, or you know, uh, Rome or a futuristic city. They have to, the stage manager or the art director three or four telling details that suggest a whole world. And that's beautiful. That's, that's the thing, is that uh, there's some writers who write like they're painting. It's, um, there, there's some writers who are great at dialogue, and then there's some writers who do it all. But, um, for example, 
uh, J.K. Rawlings, when you read her Harry Potter novels, it's when she's talking about the scenes like Diagon Alley or the any of the scenes, wherever, even Harry's stair, uh, room under the staircase, you can see it because she paints it with words. It's just, it's so beautifully done. And then, like I said, there's some people that are just natural with dialogue. Do you think there's, there's do you think people should focus on a specific thing or experiment? I don't. I don't. Um, some people do say that for sure. But I like to say that there are no optional parts to the job of being a writer. Some parts will come easily to you, and some parts will come hard to you. But the reader shouldn't have to forgive your shortcomings, nor should the reader be able to tell which parts were hard work for you and which parts came trippingly off your tongue or through your fingers. You of course, Shakespeare. <laughs> You have to master description. You have to master characterization. You have to master plot. It would be like being a carpenter who said, yeah, I use a saw, but I don't do that nail thing. I'll make a table for you, but don't ask me to varnish it. I'll make three legs, but four, come on, who needs a fourth? I get bored by the time gets around to making the fourth leg on the table. You have to do the whole job. Yeah, I agree. I didn't mean this didn't do the whole job. I more meant, do you, do you experiment when you're doing something new? Do you try to do stuff new? Oh, every book for me has to be something new and challenging. I've been very well rewarded in this field. I do well financially. I've had every award I could possibly want, including my country's highest honor, the Order of Canada, the direct equivalent of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, for my work as a science fiction writer. There is zero reason in the morning for me to sit at the keyboard unless I am doing something new and challenging. So absolutely, for the current book, The Oppenheimer Alternative, my new alternate history novel about the Manhattan Project, it was writing a novel in which every character was a real and really well-known human being. So I couldn't make up their motivations. I couldn't decide how this character talked or that character spoke. I had to learn and study how they spoke, how they talked, their way of telling a joke, whether they were loquacious or whether they were terse in uh, their dealings with others, how they talked to their colleagues, their spouses, their children. I had to learn all of that. It's the challenge that makes a book worth writing, in my estimation. That's true. I, I And I love that. I think that's one of the things I love about being a writer. It's a challenge. Absolutely. There are people, you know, I have 24 novels. I've been 30 years at this. I have friends who've been in the same game as me, being a novelist for 30 years. They've got a couple dozen novels. But they're all different adventures or cases of the same detective or lawyer or whatever, mystery authors. It would drive me nuts if I had to do that, if I had to keep going back in my 60s, writing the same kind of books I was writing in my 20s. Oh my God, I would, I would think, what, what the hell have I done with my life? What have I, how have I progressed as an artist or a human being? Well, that's, I think that's one of the reasons Agatha Christie started writing under a cinnamon. And you mentioned J.K. Rowling. And J.K. Rowling right? she, did the two, Absolutely. Yeah. More recently, right? Uh, who wanted to break out of just being a YA author and started doing the Galbraith books as uh, a way of stretching her creative wings. Yep. Because, of course, her publisher would have said to her, you just keep cranking out Harry Potter and we'll keep paying you millions. And she said, yeah, but I kind of want to, you know, be more than just Harry's chronicle. Yeah. And more power to her. She's much in the news right now for uh, what people are perceiving as transphobic um, uh, positioning, uh, a lot of tweeting and so forth. Uh, so I, one has to be careful when we invoke her name to say we're not endorsing J.K. Rowling in her current political controversy, but I do sympathize with her artistic ambitions. I think that, that I, I love her, so I, I, I really try not to think that way. I think about her as an author. I just think she's this brilliant. This is the question of all time, right? 
do we judge a person by their works or by the person? And we're in the science fiction field. We just had in the last, not even a year now, it was um, 10 months ago, the winner of the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Author got up and swore a blue streak, oh. you know, the F-bomb, uh, in receiving the award because she felt that John W. Campbell had been a racist, which he was, and a fascist, which he was not. Um, but Campbell was the single most influential magazine editor in the history of science fiction. He was one of the great editors of all time, editing Robert A. Heinlein, editing Arthur C. Clarke, mm-hmm. editing Isaac Asimov, mm-hmm. editing L. Ron Hubbard, editing Theodore Sturgeon. You name the great authors, he was the editor of them. And uh, do we judge him? Do we discard him? And his legacy and the fact that we even have a field that has transcended pulp literature and survived the demise of pulp magazines? Or do we say, well, yeah, he said a lot of nasty stuff about people, as did a whole heck of a lot of other people in that unenlightened era. Do we fairly judge the past by the standards of the present? And I say, if we are to do so, then we better be prepared to be harshly judged as well. We live in a society right now where we raise animals in horrific conditions. We raise pigs in pens that they cannot in their whole life turn around. They can't do a 180 degree turn once in their whole life before we slaughter them. And we don't think, for bacon, yeah, give me, give me the Baconator at Wendy's, come on, man. We think nothing of that. And that's just one example of how history, uh, in the case of Campbell, it was uh, 40, 50 years after his death. By the middle of this century, you and I and every self-righteous, woke individual walking around will be found wanting as well. The thing is, is that I... I I find racism, anti-Semitism, any of those abominable. But if I felt that way about every author, I would never read anything older. (laughs) Really. Because there's so many great authors who say things that there's anti-Semitism in it, there's racism in it, there's, uh, well, it's, what do they call it? It's anti-Catholic, but I think they call it anti-Papist. There's all yeah, kinds of... Right, that's right, yeah. There's all kinds of... I mean, you go and back to, like, the... Um, even even in the 1900s, if you look at stuff from the 20s or the 30s, there's a lot of stuff in it. But those people, if you look at them in the 70s, they didn't do it anymore. They grew as they got older. You're so right. People grow. And this is the huge lesson of my lifetime. Not that I'm speaking about me growing as a person. I'm talking about so many people who took for granted or even supported segregation in the American South in the 1960s by today are appalled at their youthful stupidity mm-hmm. and are, are uh, repentant in the extreme and are out there on the front lines right now of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, people do change. They grow up. You know, the best way to learn to not hate, you name the group that people might be inclined to hate, whether it's, as you mentioned, Catholics or Jews or gays or a different uh, ethnic group or a different... Get to know one. Meet one. Sit down and have a meal with one. As soon as you're breaking bread with somebody, you find out, hey, you know what? We're 99 point something percent identical anyways. And the things we have in common, loving our children, loving our parents, loving our country, loving to read or play ball or swim or whatever our hobbies are, are way more, way more of those things that we have in common than the tiny, you know, differences in the number of um, uh, melatonin producing cells we might happen to have in our outer tegument. You know what I find really interesting? When I was, uh, well, pretty much my whole life, my father was a great influence on me because he was a very intelligent person. One of the things I learned from him, and it's hard to do now because people are so diametrically opposed to each other, you can't even talk. But when I was growing up, my father could have a calm, rational discussion with someone he doesn't agree with, 
and they don't agree with him, like my dad was a knee-jerk liberal Democrat, he could talk to a super conservative Southern Republican, and they could have a common, quiet, very intelligent discussion of their opposing views with no animosity, just a discussion. It was that was what I that was how I was raised, and so absolutely, what, it's like gone now. <laughs> It, you, it's astonishing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, my own, uh, I, I lost one brother his dad, but my surviving brother is conservative. So we in Canada, we don't make any bones about it. We call our conservative party the conservative party. <laughs> and we call our liberal party the liberal party. Yep. It's like truth and labeling. And he supports the conservative party, and I support the liberal party. We can sit and talk mm -hmm. about which policies the government has enacted that he might dislike. It happens to be the Liberals are in power right now, but that changes, you know, like in the States, it flips. Uh, who's in power, uh, which ones he likes, which one he doesn't like, what it would take for him to vote for my guy, what it would take for me to vote for his guy. Um, absolutely. And you're, you've hit the nail on the head. We've gone from civil discourse and polite disagreement to the demonizing, to the considering as not even human, the other side. That's what that makes me crazy. Those animals. Oh, I and hate that. Oh, it drives me nuts. Me too. Me too. I just. This is why. It's just I a thought. It's a. Oh, I'm sorry. It's, I was just gonna say it's just a thought. It's not. It's not rational that people get so dogma in one thought that they can't see beyond it. It doesn't make sense to me. Absolutely. The reason I love science fiction, why I was drawn to it in the first place, um, is that by using masks and metaphors, by using dislocations in space and time, we can talk about issues of gender, of race, of income inequality, of uh, resources management and global warming and so forth without talking about the conservative party in Canada or the Republican party in the United States the liberal party, the democratic party we get away from the labels and get to talk about the issues and that's why so many intelligent people across the political spectrum Star Trek, which we talked about earlier absolutely a liberal left wing property but there's lots of right wing science fiction, Robert A. Heinlein wrote uh, Starship Troopers, which is as right-wing a novel as you're ever going to find. Uh, and my friend Jerry Pornell, my friend Jerry Pornell, very right-wing guy, and I'm a very left-wing guy. We were both judges for the Writers of the Future contest, and every year we'd come together in Los Angeles, shake each other's hand, go out for a meal, laugh, and have a good time together, and talk about not with any fear of getting into an argument about an issue. Yep. Because that's what human beings should do. That's what we should also be doing. That's exactly 100%. what it is. I, I just, I think that's, we've lost that. And I think we've got to get, in order for us to overcome what is happening in the world right now, we have to learn to get back civility, diplomacy, all those things that people thought was all corny and very old-fashioned, it makes us better. It makes us grow. You know, uh, I have a huge following on Facebook. I'm a successful author, so there are lots of, lots of people reading my stuff on Facebook. And people will be so rude on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And my comeback when somebody's being really rude is always the same. You never would have said that to my face. Mm -hmm. You might have disagreed with me and expressed your displeasure with something I wrote or disagreement with some opinion that I've expressed on Facebook, but you would have said it in a civil fashion. You would have said, you know, Rob, I don't know, have you really thought this about this aspect of it? Because it's the thing that sticks in my craw, and instead of you come onto my Facebook wall and say, you effing moron, you're just so typical of liberals, you're stupid as hell, I don't... Nobody does that face-to-face -face no. and, 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 and never has a second encounter with the person. But online, it, is become, it has become the default and goes right up to the top of the food chain in the United States. President Trump is all about the demonization of 
Democrats who have never seen a previous president, Republican or Democrat, constantly refer to his opponents. The president is the leader of a nation, not the leader of a party. I absolutely agree. I don't understand it. I find it it, it goes against everything that I was taught about the way a president is supposed to behave. And it's interesting because before him, um, you would think that like somebody like um, uh, George uh, H. Bush and Clinton, who were uh, um, they politically fought each other. Yes. They would hate each other in personal life, but they didn't. They did not. There was like a, it was a mutual understanding of the difficulty of the office. It was a mutual understanding that they, it was sort of a club with, with the other presidents. Um, did still people like Clinton, uh, George W. Bush, Obama, people Obama. like that still believe in that. Still believe, George W. Bush is, goes golfing with Obama. I mean, Absolutely, and what you know, this is you're exactly right. Uh, it's you know, there's who are, who are your peers if you're president of the United States? Who can you talk to about what it was like to have that job? There are, if you're lucky, three, four, five people still alive who've had the job prior to you, or or if you're not the current incumbent, who have also had that job. They're the only people on the planet who can understand what it's like to be president of the United States. We can all dream, we can all watch Martin Sheen pretend to be on TV or whatever, but to say, you know, this job's got a lot of complexity and hardship to it. And you know, there's a little bit of mold in that closet in the, um, in the Oval Office, and wouldn't it be nice if we could get that clean, whatever it is, right? There's way more in common between Obama and George W. Bush than there is that ever separated them. Yeah. And, and personally, I mean, and of course they're friends. And all of the living past presidents We're have all united in charitable works together. Yes. And created uh, the when Jimmy um, Jimmy Carter started the um, Homes for Humanity. I think that's the yeah. exactly. He, everybody took part. It didn't matter if they were Republican or Democrat. They, they, and and when uh, Clinton and the Bush Senior, they started their own group for another charity. Everybody took part. It it had nothing to do. It was humanity. In fact, um, that's right. Uh, I think it was Clinton or was it George? I don't remember who it was. But one of them said, "You can get so much more done when you're not president anymore." Oh, yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, you're absolutely right that it's all being done for people. Um, the United States' founding document, Declaration of Independence, mm -hmm. begins, we, we the, people. the people. Singular, not we the peoples of the United States. And we, we not, the not and we the elitist. Or that's right. <laughs> An e pluribus unum. Out of many, we become one. Exactly. And uh, it does. And, and it was all about, of course, the First Amendment. No law restricting on who you can criticize. Your right to uh, redress the uh, uh, um, petition the government for redress of grievances, to peaceably assemble and protest, to say whatever you want, no matter how critical it is of those who are in power. That's what America is all about. And before we get some comments in the blog, so what's this Canadian doing? I'm an American citizen as well. I'm a dual citizen. And this is near and dear to my heart. And it breaks my heart to see a country that survived well over two centuries of being e pluribus unum, out of one, out of many one, of being we the people, being sundered into two opposing camps that won't even listen to each other. And the interesting thing to me is is that our most important document is the Bill of Rights. Yes. And certain people never even heard of it. It okay. makes me disgusted. It, and there's nothing more. Our Constitution, our Declaration of Independence, and our Bill of Rights. There's this movie 
that I love. It's a comedy. It's, there's some really silly parts of it. But did you ever see Born Yesterday? Oh, with the old film with, it, um, uh, with, with Billy Monroe? No, it's with Billy, Billy, um, Billy Holiday. Billy Holiday, of course I saw it. Yeah. And William Holden. And William Holden, sure. I forgot the guy who played Billy's boyfriend. He's pretty much reminds me of a, the president of the United States at the moment. Um, <laughs> really Wonderful good actor. Absolutely. Anyway, when they go to, when he's trying to teach Billy about government, and he, they go to the Capitol building, and they go to the Library of Congress, it's like my favorite yeah. part of the whole movie, because it is just, it's like, it's done in a way anybody could understand. And it's yeah. shown beautifully. And it's in the midst of a comedy, which is like the most perfect way to teach. Absolutely. And in fact, some of the most trenchant political commentary we're getting these days is in the guise of comedy. It's on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and it's on Last Week Tonight with uh, John Oliver, and it's on uh, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Uh, but they get the top commentators just last night and people say, oh, it's all liberal. Just last night, uh, Trevor was interviewing um, an anchor from Fox News. It is not a case that no Republican voices are here, heard in those venues. And just because I'm a film trivia buff and I have to make up for screwing up, saying Marilyn Monroe, it was Broderick Crawford. Thank you. In the film. <laughs> and I, was, I was going and through, you, I was doing the old game where you like go alphabetically and I knew it was B right. and I was yeah. like trying to figure out what it was the name. <laughs> And you mentioned the Library of Congress. I've been so privileged to get to speak at the Library of Congress. Oh, you got to speak there? As a there? science fiction writer. Oh. And just, you know, when you go to the Library of Congress or you go to any of these great monuments, we don't do that in Canada. We don't have anything like the National Mall where we have a monument to this. I like to say Canada is the only country in the world that makes statues of its uh, founding fathers smaller than life size. <laughs> but you've got the Washington Monument, the Jefferson Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, and the one that tears me up that I finally got to see last year, because I don't get to Washington that often. It was the first time I've been there since it had opened. The Martin Luther King Memorial to celebrate uh, these people. And you can argue about we, you know, do, how do we judge Jefferson, who was a slaveholder. Well, we keep the monument, but we add one for Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. and uh, that's the way to do it. Uh, but the, there's so much wonderful history to the United States, fractious and horrible stuff, and, but horrible stuff that got turned around, right? The Civil War was fought and won by the victorious and virtuous side. Segregation was outlawed. You know, there's, of course... Of course, we wouldn't be having the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter protests right now if it had all been solved. But progress, progress, progress—it's always happening. The thing is about the Black Lives—the thing that hap is happening now. I was a baby when the wa March on Washington happened, so I was not mm -hmm. there. So was I. I was three. <laughs> um, I was not there. Well. I thought it was in the 60s. No. Well, I was three. It was, I was born in 1960. Oh, okay. I was born in 61. I'm older than you think I am, I guess. <laughs> no, because I'm, I'm, I was born in, I was born in 61. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it was 63. And I was a baby, so I couldn't have taken part, but i seen it on TV and in, on film, and the difference between what's going on now and going on then is that it's everybody now. It's not... Yeah. It, I mean, there were some other uh, people that were part of the march that were white, and uh, there was Hispanic, and there were Indian. It just wasn't as much as it is today. Now there's so many more people who said, hey, this is shitty. Let's do something about it. And they are. It is... Yeah. It is That's progress. to see Black Lives Matter protests happening all over the world in towns and cities where there are vanishingly few, if any, black people. Everybody is saying, 
to hell with this. We've had enough of our brothers and sisters, and I know those are loaded words when you talk, because an African-American will say, oh, that's my brother, meaning that's a fellow black person over there. But we are all brothers and sisters. We belong to exactly one species, Homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. And we're on one planet, and we have no way to get off, and all we have is each other. And it's about time we grow up and figure it out. (laughs) We are. That's right. Anyway, so on this high note, (laughs) I thought we'd talk about Writers of the Future. (laughs) Sure. And this is, you know, here's the wonder of it. Writers of the Future and its sister contest, the Illustrators of the Future contest, but all the information, the website is old, so it's writersofthefuture.com. Uh, I mean, it's updated, but the URL dates back to when there was just one contest. Writersofthefuture.com. Writers of the Future is a contest for beginning science fiction and fantasy writers. By beginning, we don't necessarily mean young. We've had some senior citizens win the contest. What we mean is at the beginning of their writing careers. And what we found is that we get entries from all over the world, from right across the political spectrum, from right across the gender expression spectrum, from right across, you name, there, there is no demographic that, that isn't participating in this contest. Because everybody understands the value, everybody in this contest understands the value the power that literature can have for changing people's minds about societal issues. We as the judges, I'm one, and I've uh, uh, perhaps alluded to a couple of my other judge friends, uh, Jerry Pornell, who's passed away quite recently, my my friend who's passed away, but uh, Nettie Okorafor, who is one of our judges, uh, we have uh, just the creme de la creme, uh, Orson Scott Card, uh, Gregory Benford, Larry Niven, or big names from the past and big names from the present judging this contest. Um, we see nothing except the story. The judges do not see the name of the author or the return address. It's a completely level playing field. Now, what happens when you have a completely level playing field, we see it year after year because we all come to Los Angeles. In, normally, it's in the spring. Of course, COVID-19 derailed that for this particular year. Come to Los Angeles. All the judges come, and we teach seminars to the top, uh, the winners and the runners-up of the contest. It's as diverse a crew as you could ever want to see. It's people of every skin tone. It's people of every age group. It's people who are rich, people who are poor, people from Africa, people from Asia, people from the Soviet, now the Russian, but one of our winners was uh, was a winner at the time that it was the Soviet Union. People from all over, because good work is created by everybody, everywhere. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I know that the I know that they had the award um, go out, but then they couldn't, of course, have the ceremony because of the pandemic. Um, but we'll make it up. There will be a ceremony. Don't worry. <laughs> this year, we're having a, a great conversations right now. Me and John Goodwin, the other judges, uh, Jody Labaki, who is the uh, coordinator of the contest, uh, about how we're going to make sure that none of our winners get anything less than the winners in every other year got. They may have to come to a ceremony next year. They may have to wait to get that red carpet treatment, their trophies. They won't have to wait on their checks, I don't think. But they will. We're, we're, nobody is missing out because of this pandemic, not as far as Writers of the Future is concerned. It's a weird time, though, with all the stuff that's happening all totally. at once. I mean, and it's weird because, you know, a lot of people kind of were looking forward to 2020 because it was sort of like, oh, good, the 1920s. Uh, uh, women's rights, gay rights, the all the yeah, all the good. I mean, yeah, there were bad stuff like gang wars and things like that. But, <laughs> uh, but it was the period between two world wars that we didn't think there would be a second one. Yeah, we thought we'd done the world war. We did that horrible thing. Yeah, we thought it, it was a really, it was a, an upbeat time. And also, just every time you start a new decade. You know how it is when you start a new year. Okay, turning over a new leaf, New Year's resolution, a new decade. 
is that writ large. Everybody had great hopes for the year 2020. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be hell. an anus for abulians. <laughs> it turned out to be a terrible, terrible year. Yeah, it's been hell. It's been... It started really good. First two months for me was really good. Then it just kind of went... <laughs> it's a concatenation of things. It is the... They call it a perfect storm, you know, when multiple causes come together. And we have... Uh, you know, dealing with a, 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 a health crisis, and that health crisis precipitating a mental health crisis of people being trapped in their homes and and so forth. On top of that, dealing with uh, horrific uh, brutality by police departments, and that coming to a head. On top of an economic collapse. On top of blah 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 blah. It's it's. A whole bunch of things happening, and you can look for the cause and effect chains one to the other. Some are related and some aren't. Obviously, the Black Lives Matter issue is not causally related to the uh, the coronavirus. No. Uh, but some of the other things are related, and we just have, you know, history doesn't happen one at a time. It just dumps on you a whole bunch of things that you got to keep uh, dealing with. Do you believe in the old uh, maxim that if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it? Hundred percent. We see it. I mean, my God, so much. Forgive me, but so much of Donald Trump's playbook is the same playbook that Adolf Hitler used, not when Hitler was Chancellor of Germany, but when he was gearing up to become Chancellor of Germany. The exact same uh, uh, tools were employed, and the propaganda. The, uh, the, the the telling the people that they can't believe the free press, that the press is your enemy, listen only to my official sources about what truth is. Oh my God, we're seeing all kinds of people who are letting history repeat itself. And my most recent novel, The Oppenheimer Alternative, comes on the 75th anniversary of the birth of the atomic age because the lesson need to be revisited periodically of how dangerous atomic weapons are, how we cannot likely survive another atomic war. Well, only two atomic bombs were used in that first world war, but in the second world war, well, as Einstein said, I don't know what weapons will be used in the next world war, World War Three, but World War Four, I do know. It's going to be sticks and stones. Yeah. Because that's all civilization that will be left. The thing is, is that, and this is another quote from my dad, if you'll forgive me, if we, yeah. do, if we do not accept other people and the way that every single person has their own thoughts and their own heart, we can never be, call ourselves civilized. Well, my dad used to say Absolutely. it a lot. Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, we... Uh, we have a name for our species, and it was given to us in one of the greatest acts of hubris of all time. Carl Linnaeus named our species, and he called us Homo sapiens, which means the wise people, the man <laughs> of wisdom. And uh, no, we got a long way to go. We're struggling to reach a new enlightenment, and we will get there. But uh, it, it was a really premature to say, oh yeah, we are the wise man. Uh, we are, and of course, homo is opposed in Latin to ver. Ver is the Latin word for man. Homo is the Latin, man, the individual. Homo is humankind, the species, right? So when people say homo sapiens means man of wisdom, or wise men, or as I like to say, it means ah, wise guys, see? <laughs> Which is also how you could translate homo sapiens. It means, <laughs> I like that uh, one best. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Roderick Crawford would have appreciated that one <laughs> to go because he was starred in the TV series The FBI. Uh, he had to deal with a lot of wise guys. But, uh, but yeah, it was way premature to call ourselves that. But we'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there. Um, we're coming to the end. So mm. uh, do you have a new book coming out? Oh, wait, I, it's I the Oppenheimer that. book, right? The Oppenheimer Alternative, my 24th novel. It's an alternate history or a secret history of the Manhattan Project scientists dealing, who were the creators of the atomic bomb, giving them an opportunity to turn around what Oppenheimer famously said in uh, August of, um, sorry, July, 75 years ago at the Trinity test, the first atomic bomb explosion, he said, now I've become death. 
mm-hmm. the destroyer of worlds. Now I become death, the destroyer of worlds, quoting Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, I wanted to give him an opportunity to have a redemption, to turn that around, he and his colleagues, and if they succeed, be able to say, now we are become life, the saviors of our world. That's the Oppenheimer alternative. My new novel by Robert J. Sawyer, bookstores, e-books, audio books, <laughs> the whole gamut. Um, do you have a website? Sure do. I'm celebrating the 25th anniversary of my website wow. today. Not today, this month, June. Um, and uh, since I got in early and was the first science fiction writer in the world to have a website devoted to his science fiction writing, uh, I got a great URL. It's sfwriter.com. S is in science, F as in fiction. Writer.com, sfwriter.com, and on social media, you'll find me Facebook, Twitter, Patreon. It's my full name, just pushed together with no punctuation or spaces. Robert J. Sawyer. And Sawyer like Tom. And it's the same on all of the ones that you're on. Um, the same, you're at Robert yep. J. Sawyer. That's right. And it's like Tom Sawyer. Yeah, spelled like Tom Sawyer. All <laughs> Americans know Tom Sawyer. Uh, S-A-W-Y-E-R. It's what I thought of immediately when I heard your name. <laughs> oh, I was teased. As a kid, you're teased. No matter what your name is, they'll find a way to make fun of it. Mine happened to be Sawyer, so when I wasn't being called Tom Sawyer, I was being called Soybean. <laughs> I understand that completely. Um, um, are you on Twitter or Instagram? Not in, I have an Instagram account, and it is Robert J. Sawyer. I'm not active there. Um, but Twitter, absolutely. I'm at Robert J. Sawyer on Twitter. Okay. Um, well, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to come on my show. It's been quite delightful. I hope you enjoyed it. I did indeed. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. Bye. Bye.